Now in this uh, first verse, or, or verse 33, it said this, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. That idea, great grace was upon them all, really seems to characterize what's going on in these few verses. Now, in my experience in interacting with many others, what's going on in this, these particular verses is extraordinarily special and sadly rare. Because the, the, the grace of God was so great upon them that it was producing what we're going to see in three different ways in this passage. It was producing a unity. It was producing from them charity. And, and it was also compelling them in their duty. And in these three things, we see the, the great grace of God manifest. And we're thankful for the grace of God. There is no salvation apart from the grace of God. But we ought be those who desire that grace would abound more and more to others as well as to us. We also know that those who would even have various spiritual gifts were to exercise them according to the measure of grace that was given them. So there is, there is the necessity of saving grace to begin with. But nonetheless, the, the experiential grace of God uh, that is conveyed to us can ebb and flow. And what we see is that this was an extraordinary season of great grace. Not a surprise because they're coming in those days of their most initial earnest conversion. And further than that, we read in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, that daily they were committing themselves, devoting themselves to the apostles' doctrine and fellowship of breaking of bread and prayer. That absolute daily commitment to the truth as given to us by the authority of Christ and to the, the life of that truth lived out among one another is what brought about this extraordinary season of great grace. Now, I have a sad note to put in here. By the time we reach chapter 6, this season of great grace and unity and camaraderie is interrupted as there are those of the Hellenists among them that rise up and complain, our widows are being overlooked. So from a time where it seemed that there was attentiveness to the needs of all and a unity without division, by chapter 6 already there was a sense of us and them, me and you, separation, preferences, uh, one above the other. We're not getting entitlement, whereas here that wasn't the case. Okay, so again, we, we, the, the ideal too often that people put out there is, oh, if we could only be like the apostolic church. And you say, what? Which apostolic church? Every single one of them, uh, the church at Galatia that was so easily being misled and bewitched, the church at Corinth that's having divisions and fighting over who are the preeminent leaders and, and, and pride over exercise of spiritual gifts. Which early church do you want to be like? When we see those seven churches in the early part of the book of Revelation, most of them had significant deficiencies. All right there in the days of the apostles. So there is not an ideal church. But in the context of a local church. This one here in Jerusalem. 
There were ideal seasons. But the sad reality is those seasons are oft not sustained because of the sin that still remains in our own hearts. You know, we always want to point the finger. This is the reason. He's the reason. She's the reason. We are as much part of that reason. But what I want us to do is see what they did and see uh, how it unfolds. The unity and camaraderie really comes in this. It says the full number of those or more. More accurately, the crowd, the throng, the multitude of those who believed. This is, this is the source of unity. When our identity, when our passions, when our lives are all ordered by our faith. And it's not just our faith that is ours, but but. The faith that God has granted us that absolutely commits itself and submits itself to all the truth that he has revealed. Remember, in this church it was, they committed themselves to the apostles' doctrine. What they were not doing all is gathering into various committees and groups and saying, do, do, you, do you like this? Do you, do you think this will work in our society? Do you think that people will be pleased with this? No. These men had been taught by Christ. They declared the truth as given them. And it was received for what it was, the very word of God. Paul will say this same thing later to other churches. You received the word for what it was, not the word of men, but the word of God. One of the things that is, is a, an absolute breakdown in the unity of God's people is... A reverencing of our opinions. The push to speculation rather than a stewardship of the mysteries of God. God has given us his word. And it is filled with so much truth. So much doctrine. So much depth. If we were to commit ourselves to strive to know all that God has revealed... We would still not accomplish that likely in our earthly days. But we get too distracted with our own speculations. There's so much here that is actually revealed. Let's not waste our time with men's opinions and men's ideas. They believed. Those who believed. So the, the unity first was the fact that they had been brought by grace into unity with God. Remember, the scripture teaches us by nature we are at enmity, estranged from him. But by the grace of God, through the blood of Christ, we are now reconciled. And we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We who had no fellowship with him, as it says in 1 John, we now have fellowship with the Father and the Son. I mean, this, this is the, the preeminent source of our unity. If, if our hearts are swelled with, with a sincere passion at the rich reality of our reconciliation, I think that we would not be so prone to fight with one another and bicker with one another and argue with one another over mundane things. I've heard stories of churches at times being split or divided over things as small as what color nurseries should be painted. 
And I wish it was a joke. And I'm sure that if I was to survey around, they would say, you think that's a small thing to split over. Listen what happened here and listen what happened there. And there's a multitude of opinions and ideas that swell up that, that seek to invade our unity. But if we, I think, focused on this reality, we who by nature had no unity with God, he in his holiness, us in our sin. He in his righteousness, us in our wickedness. And by the grace of God in Christ, he has purposed that we would be clothed in the righteousness of God, brought near to him, not only, not, not only um, in a figurative way, but we now have a vital and living relationship with God. He is our father who adopts us in the beloved and cares for us. But I want us to see this. They were, so there is a unity with Christ. But it says those who believed were of one heart and soul. Doesn't that sound beautiful? Of one heart and soul. Now again, it, it's sort of a Hebrewism here. This phrase heart and soul. That, that captivates the whole notion of the, the whole inner man. One of the challenges we often do face, and you see it from uh, Old Testament to New Testament translations, and even from the Old Testament to the English translations, very often times the scriptures in the Hebrew speaks of what's called the leib, that is the inner man. And depending on the verse that you look at, sometimes it's translated our hearts. Other verses translates it our minds. The reality is it, it, it's to captivate our whole inner man. Even this idea of hearts uh, isn't the, the, the way that we often think of it. One of the things it says in Mark 2 verse 6 is this. Now some of the scribes, this is when Jesus had just forgiven the sins of the paralytic man that they had lowered through uh, the roof slats. Some of the scribes were sitting and it says questioning in their hearts now do we question in our hearts or do we question in our minds and so the the idea of the of the heart and soul there is absolute unity there in the in this early church there was absolute doctrinal unity because you know what their doctrine was whatever these men say that's the truth that ought to be, the, and that's the only hope of doctrinal unity today. Whatever the scripture says, that's the truth. However it unfolds it, that's what we believe. However, it, it is different than our, our past, different than our experience, different than our expectation. None of that matters. If the word of God clearly teaches it, it's true. Jesus, it goes on to say in uh, Matthew 2, 8, and immediately Jesus perceived in his spirit that they questioned within themselves and said, why do you question these things in your hearts? Listen to this urging that takes place throughout some of the epistles. In 1 Corinthians 1, 10, God's word says this, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I love that basis for the appeal. We've got to understand this from the beginning. The appeal isn't for a blatant unity for unity's sake. It's not a camaraderie for community's sake. It is for Christ's sake. 
Christ should have and must remain to have preeminence in everything. Because listen, if you and I are pursuing unity for Christ's sake, there's nothing anyone can do that we can say, forget about it. If you're doing it for community's sake and you're doing it for people's sake, it does not become too long to where you look at them and say, that, that guy's not worth it. He's not worth the effort. He's not worth the endeavor. I, I'm done with this. If it's for his sake, but if it's for Christ's sake, he's always worthy. He's always worthy of more. He's always worthy of our pressing on. I appeal to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you. That you be united in the same mind and of the same judgment. Let me put those things together. That, that you all agree, united in the same mind and have the same judgment. You know what that is not? That is not let's agree to disagree. That's a very common phrase in this world today. I mean, it takes place in the context of churches and it takes place in so many environments, in the, even in the realm of doctrine. Well, let's just agree to disagree. Let's never, never agree to disagree. Let's agree that wherever we disagree, to in love pursue unity and agreement, to be of the mind and the same judgment. Does that sound like there's different perspectives and different viewpoints? Now, we're going to have different perspectives. That's why we're called to pursue that. And so we speak the truth in love. We teach with patience. We show kindness and meekness and gentleness to all. But let's stop agreeing to disagree. <laughs> let's agree to continue to pray Agree to continue to search the scriptures. Let's agree to continue to discuss in love. Until maybe for the sake of even as it says in Ephesians. We all come to a unity of the faith. So that we're no longer like children who are tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. If we're just a constantly agreeing to disagree. Things get more and more fragmented. More and more divided. And more and more confused. Let's agree to agree. Let's agree to pursue agreement of the same mind. And the same mind and the of, pursuit of this is done with a great simplicity. Rooted in a singular source. And that is the word of God. Really for us, even that word that is given to us by the authority of Christ. It includes surely the Old Testament. But even as the Old Testament is appropriated and unpacked to us. Through the person and revelation of Christ. We take that New Testament. And that instruction that it gives to us. And we say this I believe. This I will do. Not, not this is unacceptable to me. This is hard to understand. There are going to be things that are hard to understand. Remember, Peter says that of Paul's writing. There are things in there that are hard to understand. Which the wicked and unstable twist to their own destruction. As they do with the rest of scripture. But he doesn't say this. Because they're hard to understand. Don't try. He doesn't say don't worry about it. Just agree to disagree. Just set it on the shelf. No, they're hard to understand. They require discipline. 
They require diligence. They require prayer. They require maturity. They require learning. The Where it says ignorant and unstable, those are definitely not complementary terms, right? Ignorant. You know, I, rarely will you come across anyone where you say, raise your hand if you're ignorant. And anyone's going to lop the hand up there. What? But the, the idea of ignorant there is he or she that is untrained, untaught. I tell you, for some reason, in the realm of, of Christian truth, we elevate our own thoughts and our own opinions in, in very, very peculiar ways. You know, I think that when, when we're dealing with medicine that pertains to the body, that's one issue. But is not the things of the soul of a much deeper, more significant and more abiding issue? And so generally speaking, if someone goes in to see a doctor and they, give, they prescribe a particular course of treatment, uh, uh, you need this medicine, you need this surgery, you need these things, you might get a second opinion. And where do you usually get that second opinion? Your mother? No, you go to what? Another doctor who's trained or another specialist, someone who's skilled in that area. And, and if, if you're getting the, the same things from two doctors, what do you begin to think? Nah, I think the doctors are wrong because I'm feeling sugar is the best treatment for my issue. Does that work? No, but we, we generally understand that when it comes to, to matters of the body, we, we defer to particular men because of their training in medicine. You know. Now again, we do live in a day and age where you got WebMD and you got other things. So you can go ahead and check out uh, what are the side effects of this particular medicine that's prescribed. And you can do a little bit of learning on your own. But without, without going forward, is it really healthy to just hold our opinions in high regard? And disregard the thoughts of those who are trained. Now that said, among men who are trained in the era in which we live, do they all agree? Not at all. So who do you listen to? Your favorite. No. The most gifted. No. The most entertaining. No. You listen, but you listen to see if what they're saying is what the word says. You go back and say, is what they're saying what it says? Or are they adding to it? Are they going beyond it? Are, are, are they inputting and adding their wisdom to it? Or are they wholeheartedly committed to the word of God? And so that's what we need to look at. These are of the same heart and same mind. Philippians 2, 2 to 5 says this. Really, just let's just look at verse 2. Complete my joy, Paul says to the church at Philippi, by being of the same mind, having the same love, by being in full accord and of one mind. It's like, what are you doing there? Of one mind, full accord, the same mind. That's a strong emphasis there, isn't it? He's wanting them to come to unity. And the way that we come to unity is by setting aside our own pride. Setting aside our, our own supposed knowledge. Because so many of the things that we may think we know may not necessarily be the case. And so we humbly come and present ourselves. What does the scripture teach? What does the word of God 
teach. Uh, uh, there's, there's a great longing in my heart as I look not only at various local churches, but I look at churches' relationships with one another. Uh, that, that, that sense of unity and that sense of camaraderie is, is so often destroyed by people's pet doctrines. Let us focus on what the scriptures actually say. There's a reason why the, the initial cry of the Reformation was sola scriptura. It was, you know, we, we've got all these councils. We've got all of these, these doctrines. We've got all of these creeds. We've got all of these people saying these things. But what does God's word say? And what God's word says that's got to be where we commit ourselves. And that's really the simplicity of what was taking place here in the great grace of unity in this church. They were of the same heart and the same soul. Their, their minds were given to it. Their hearts were given to it. The soul often is a reference to emotion, which isn't a surprise. Hebrews 8 reminds us that when, when God, by his grace, saves us, he gives us his spirit. And what does his spirit do? It writes his law. Upon our minds. And it writes his law upon our hearts. See if, if I am of a mind and heart. To obey God and follow him at his word. And this person has the same commitment. And this person has the same commitment. And this person has. Then you know what happens? We walk together. I love the language that sometimes is caught up. We've been seeing it a number of times when we went through the book of Judges in the morning hour. They gathered together as one man. They went out as one man. That's, isn't that the notion of it? We go as one man, one body with Christ at the head. No one else. I mean, the, the real sense of it. And, and what has to captivate. And, and the danger is this. Uh, Churches will have this tendency to say things like this. Well, pastor so-and-so says. Brother this said. And they quote the man as definitive. Whereas in an ideal circumstance it would be. Brother so-and-so, pastor so-and-so. Drew our attention to the word of God where it says. Reminded us that the scripture teaches. So that our, our, our confidence and authority rests not ultimately on the present man who is making the proclamation. But on the fact that what he is proclaiming is exactly what Christ gave to the apostles. That we ourselves also are committed to the apostles doctrine. And to fellowship and breaking of bread and prayer. Only in that pursuit will we find Great grace. I love the way that um, he says it in Philippians 1.27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come or whether I'm absent. I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. I like that this. Standing firm in one spirit. With one mind. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So are we standing or are we striving? Yes. Are we standing or are we fighting? 
Yes, we're standing with one heart and with one mind. With the faith that's once for all delivered for the saints. But we're also striving side by side. I like that side by side because not, we're not striving for our name. We're not striving to make a name for ourselves. We're not striving to make a kingdom for ourselves. We're, we're striving side by side for the sake of the gospel. For the sake of the name that is above every other name. Oh, just love to see that unity and camaraderie that's brought about by the word of the Spirit. Secondly, in this passage, we see that this unity of one heart and one soul manifests itself in a charity or generosity. So we saw unity and camaraderie. Now we see charity and generosity. Now, it, it says this, no one, in verse 32, said that any of the things that belonged to him were his own, but he held them all in common. It, it, now, as, as we begin to look at this, I, I want us to, to, to begin to process a few things. Uh, they, the, it says the same thing in chapter 2, that no one considered anything theirs old, but they held, held every, their own, but held everything in common. This is not a plea to communism. Okay, this is not uh, not this notion that sell everything that you have and give it all to the church and then they will give a certain amount to you as you need each week. I've actually heard that such places exist, that everybody's monthly income, it's all given to the church. And the church is also informed the particular monetary needs of housing and food and other things. And then the church gives it back to them what they need. That's not what's going on here. And we'll see a little bit more about this next week. But I do want you to look forward at chapter 5 verse 4. So we get a clear sense of, of more of the details. The, the sense of what's going on is. Everything that they had. They did not cling to it with a selfish sense of personal ownership. Okay. That's what's being taught there. But it's not denying the validity of ownership. Because it says this in verse 4 of chapter 5, as, as there uh, Peter is speaking to Ananias. It says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? So there was no requirement upon anyone that they had to go and sell all their land. While it remained unsold, it was yours to keep or to sell. It's all, it's all in your hands. So there wasn't a requirement. It was simply the attitude was, the properties I have, if there's a need, I'm willing to let those go to help that need. Not, I have to sell everything and give it to the... Further, it says this, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? So once the money has been received for the selling of the property, the money belonged to who? It still belonged to the individual. And they could give a tithe of it. They could give 50% of it. They could give all of it. It was their choice to give from a generous heart however they so desired. They weren't, there was not a requirement, but the general prevailing spirit in the early church was, you know what, I, none of the things that I have are more important than my brothers and sisters in Christ. And so if they're in need, 
And I'm going I'm to release a little of what I have so that I can help them out. Because my brothers and sisters, these, my people in Christ are more important than my possessions in this world. That's what, that's the spirit that was taking place here. So Peter makes it very clear. Nobody was required to sell anything. Once they sold it, nobody was required to give the total proceeds to the church. That was all voluntary to the individual. But the prevailing spirit that was taking place in this early church is they were regularly exercising that voluntary desire. Here's a need. I can't meet that need right now, but if I sell this, then I'll be able to help meet that need. I'm going to do this. So when you, when you begin to see it, now it's easier when we understand this, and I, and I, I want to back this up. Remember, who is doing this? Believers. This is not simply an urge to a communal mindset. Once we understand that it, it, the great grace was all who believed were of one heart and mind, it is all who believed were selling properties and giving to those in needs. Because the core principle is one who is made a believer, their entire perspective on possessions has been utterly altered. They, they see things differently. They learn from very clear passages, such as Psalm 50, verse 10 and following. It says this, God speaking to the psalmist, Every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills, I know all the birds on the hills, all that moves on the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Are you picking up on something there in the way I'm reading it? It all belongs to who? God. Psalm 24 verse 1 and 2 says this. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell in it. Okay, so what belongs to God? Everything, everyone. So, again, someone says, but this is mine. All right, this is yours. Really? Because who, who owns you? Now, a simple way, uh, some of you are familiar. There was... A permission under the old covenant for certain forms of slavery to which the owners were held responsible uh, on how they treated them. And for those who had slaves among the children of Israel, they would have to release them in the year of Jubilee. But nonetheless, there were certain standards that were there. And generally, there might be a, a slave. And while a slave, he might get married to another slave and have a wife. And together, they will have kids and the scripture speaks of an occasion where now the man has paid off his debt that he had gone into slavery for so now he can go free but you know what problem he has that wife still belongs to the master those kids were born kids of slavery they belong to the master 
And so that man who, whether it was love for the master, whether it was love for his wife or kids, could commit himself to continue in the position of a servant. And many of you are aware the way he would commit himself to that voluntary bond servanthood, push that man up against a door, get yourself an, an all, which some of you uh, can't picture what that is, an ice pick used for wood, drive it through the man's ear. It's, it's that level of, and then he would remain there so that he could still have his wife and kid because when he went out, they weren't his to take because who did they still belong to? The master. That's the reality. Everything belongs to God. And this, is, this, this isn't, well, that's the Old Testament. You, you hear weird people trying to say that all the time. It, truth does not fail to remain truth as we move forward. Certain elements in the covenant relationship. This is not de declaring the old covenant relationship. This is declaring the sovereign rights of the almighty God. And it says it again in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 26. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. I love the way it's said in Deuteronomy 10 14. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heaven and the earth and all that is in it. Job 41 11. Who has given me first that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. So all that exists belongs to God, right? Further, so there is a sense in which, which, so even the unbelievers belong to God in a certain sense. They owe him duty. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness and they will all be judged by him. Now, there's an extraordinary unique and intimate way that we also belong to God. And the scripture reminds us of this in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and following. It says, for you were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God in your body. You were bought with a price. You are, verse 19, end of it says, you are no longer your own, for you have been bought with a price. We belong to him. Acts 2, 27, 23, uh, in that shipwreck circumstance, Paul says this, for this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong. There, you know, I am his and he is mine, but not in exactly the same sense. <laughs> in intimacy and closeness, yes, but I am his and he is mine. I am his in that I'm his servant. He is mine. And that he's my Lord and Master and Savior. Not only that, so we belong to him, but all we have belongs to him. A not only a logical deduction, but a scriptural one. And we often pray this at times when we're, we have the privilege each Sunday of giving something to the Lord. We recognize everything we have, we have from him. First Chronicles 29, 14 David simply said this, but who am I and what is my people that we should be able to offer thus to you willingly for all things come from you and of your own we have given you. So again, the charity and generosity 
that is being exhibited here, it really starts with the fact that they're believers. That they have a right understanding of who God is and who they are in relation to God. That is one of the, the sadly deficient things that's taking place in the church today. There's not a, a real sense of who God is in his sovereignty, in his might, in his power, in his holiness, and in his being. And who we are. Dependent. Needy. Subject to. And serving. If we understood that, things would be so much clearer. What we have belongs to him. And what we do with what we have is for him. We're told in 1 Timothy 6, the scripture says, As for those who are rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. This is the, this is the, the core, really it, what ends up being the impetus for holiness in our Christian lives. And the impetus for unity, the impetus for charity, the impetus for duty, it all comes to a right understanding of who God is. Set their minds, set their hopes, set their hearts on God. And when your hopes and your heart are set on God, then what about the riches of this world? It's not so hard to give them up, isn't it? What about if your hopes and heart are set on God, it's not as hard to acknowledge our mistakes, our failings, our, our errors, our wrongs. It says, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of the life that truly is life. And more than that, there's a sense in which not only do we belong to the Lord, but there's a sense in which we belong to one another. The scripture reminds us of this. It says in Romans 12, 5, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Remember, in that context, the scripture reminds us, can, can the hand say to the foot, I have no need of you? And so on and so forth. Each part of the body takes care of other parts of the bodies. I mean there is a danger. As much as there is a confusion to, to this, this idea of community. That, that doesn't have the preeminence of Christ. But exalts community above that. That danger. We also face the danger of, of, of a rampant and extreme individualism. That cares only for itself. And doesn't care. And we understand those kind of things as well. Because when we hear about atrocities that take place in Syria. And you hear about all these different families. And all these different kids. And all these different things that happen. We hear about it. And it's like, oh, that's not good. But if that same thing happened to our families. To our friends. To our kids. Then all of a sudden... It's very serious. It's very relevant. And it's very close by. Well, we, we have that contact with one another. And that's why 1 John 3, 17 says this. If anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against it, how does the love of God abide in him? 
But I do want to draw your attention to this, that lest we miss this. The focus in this passage, if, if you're, you looked at it, chapter 2, verse 44, it says they, uh, 44 and 45, they held everything together. They were selling their possessions and, and distributing to uh, the proceeds to all as any had need. Again, in the passage that we're looking at, verse 34, it said of chapter 4, there was not a needy person among them. Verse 35 ended, it was distributed as each had need. So the relevance was not was need. It wasn't a redistribution of wealth. It wasn't that everybody should be on, on, on the same level. There would still be the rich among them, but none need be lacking. They're still going to be in different positions and in different circumstances according to God's providential lot in their life. But those that God has given the providential lot of prosperity were to give themselves to generosity to meet the needs of those who were, who were in need. But now here's a danger. I just want to make sure that we see the, the other side of this. The scripture encourages the saints to be generous to help those in need. And now someone shows up in need. Generally when we look at this. The, the hope would be that you're meeting temporary needs of an individual. Someone ought not necessarily declare, the, declare themselves the permanently needy. We, we, we faced this problem at one point way back in the, in the local church in India where there was a particular family in the church that husband and wife didn't have jobs, didn't have income, and they were struggling to uh, pay school fees, which you have to do in India to put their daughter in school. They were struggling to have food to eat, and, and the, the local church came alongside of them you know, and began to provide uh, uh, food some money to help in certain ways, but then the need, the neediness went three months, six months, a year. And one day the, the lady uh, in that family came to my wife and said, you know, I'm so, we're, we're so struggling, uh, don't have anything. And I was thinking, how are we going to make it? And then I remembered, oh, that's the church's responsibility. Like, what? Huh. Well, um. So there was a certain point at which the church looked at this family that had committed themselves to perpetual need and said, you know, we're just not going to be able to keep giving like this month after month. We're praying that God would provide you with jobs. And it was pretty remarkable how once the, the tap was closed, that they both had jobs in, within a month. Whereas they hadn't been able to find in all that time. The scriptures do say this very, very clearly in 2 Thessalonians. I don't want us to miss this. Chapter 3, verse 9 and following. Uh, speaking of first the example that Paul himself was as he labored among them. Remember, when he would go from place to place, if, if his needs weren't met, he would work. And it says this, verse 10, for even when we were with you. We would give you this command if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Now that's hard, right? I mean, because from one angle, it looks like they need food. 
But then the scripture saying, if he's not willing to work, let him not eat. And then we have to wrestle with that circumstance. It's like, yeah, he's not willing to work. But also because of him, his kids aren't going to eat. And the rest, you know, so there's a lot we have to wrestle through practically. But here is you to know this. Just because someone, he has need. He has need of money. He has food, need of food. But why was this man in need? Because he wasn't willing to work. So his greatest need was not money. His greatest need was to man up and get a job. His greatest need was to step up and meet his responsibility in society and to his household. And that is the need that he needed to be best encouraged by that church. If he will not work, let him not eat. For we hear that there are some among you who walk in idleness. Not at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. And so that's one of the things we have to wrestle with. Sometimes the doing good is to withhold generosity. Because what they need is to be commanded and urged to step up and do what they need to do. So, so again, I want us to understand, understand how, how this works. Further, there was not a needy individual among them, within them. The, the generosity was focused within the community of faith. Within the household of God. One of the things that has at times become problematic at, in the past. In certain places on the mission field. In India where we were for many years. Uh, there's a saying in that place. Where certain individuals were referred to as rice Christians. Don't know if you've ever heard that terminology before. But the reason why they have joined the church. Is because by joining the church. They are guaranteed to get help and support. To be able to have enough food for their families and rice being the main staple diet. And so, it, and this became a, a, a problem throughout India where foreign funds are coming in and people are joining the church. Because you know why? You don't have to pay a membership fee. You join the church and you get paid. You get enrolled for a monthly income just for joining the church. Hallelujah? No! But th th that's a motivation. Uh, and so you get all of these people who were converting. Was it because of faith? Was it because of repentance? Was it because they believed? Or was it because they could get some money and get some food? And so it, it made Christians look bad. So again, we're not out to solve all of the issues in the world we can't take care of all of the widows and all of the orphans and all of the poor and all of the needy. But as it says in 1 John, if you know that your brother has need, your brother has need and you have worldly goods, you give to him. As you can. Thirdly, and lastly in this section. Oh, I just wanted to also remind you, 1 Timothy 5.16 also said this. If any believing woman who was a widow... Uh, has relatives who, uh, who are widows, let her care for them. So even then, the, the church wasn't, wasn't to be the catch-all. 
No, if your family has a widow and you can take care of them, wipe past that need onto the church. Bring them in and you take care of them. It's a, it's a different mentality. Each one thinking, where can I help? Where is there a need? And sometimes that encouragement is get up and get after it. The third thing I want to draw our attention to in this passage is right in the middle of it as speaks of great grace being, being born out. It says this in verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And great grace was upon them all. Now, the reason why I say this is on the day of Pentecost, what happened? Gospel went out. They preached the gospel. They declared the resurrection of Christ. And 3,000 were converted. Right? That's a lot of work, isn't it? So you know what can quickly become the focus? We got to take care of these 3,000. We got to get them discipled. We got to get them trained. We got to get, we, you know, we, we got to run this. The, all this money also is being gathered up and, and we'll see it's being laid at the disciples' feet. We got, we got, all right, now we've got to, we got to shift our focus now. Our focus now is going to have to be to kind of take care of these believers and, and to distribute the funds, do a little CEO activity and get everything rightly organized not what these men did in the midst of all of that remember Christ had told them this in Acts chapter 1 verse 9 you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth and what I love that I'm seeing here in chapter 4 in the midst of all of those increasing responsibilities and things that would pull them to all kinds of distinctive priorities, there is a duty that they are maintaining. There is a fidelity that they're maintaining. They were appointed by Christ to be witnesses to his resurrection. To declare his gospel. And so no matter what else is beginning to go on. They're sticking with that duty. Well, why are you? Why are you worried about it? Soon we also know that uh, three thousand becomes five thousand plus women and children. I mean, it's a massively growing church. Why are you? You can't even care for these people properly. Why are you sharing the gospel that more might be saved? Maybe you ought to set that aside for a while and focus on. There's a lot of logic of men that can go into it, can't it? The logic of men means nothing. Christ appointed them to the task of making known the resurrection of Christ and the salvation that is in his name. The evangel, the gospel, the proclamation of salvation to the world cannot be lost in all of the other priorities of the church. It can't be left off. And so what, what I'm amazed at when I look at this simple passage, just, just in terms of closing it up, it, the, the, the unity and camaraderie started, first of all, because they were believers. The generosity because they belonged to God and understood that all things belonged to him. So really, when we begin to see, when we see this section unfold, we see that these, there's, a, there's this great grace that gives them a clear understanding of their first and highest priority. And that is between them and God, their Savior. 
We see secondarily in this passage, we see the uh, charity and generosity. The, the second layer or level of commitment and responsibility to what? Our brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and to, to show forth that love, that care, that, that, one, that one soul, that one heart to meet the needs of one another. And, and, and that, that blessed fellowship and faithfulness and loyalty of that community. And then what else? Proclaiming the resurrection of Christ out to the world. And so you, you see in this early church where there was great grace, those, those great layers of priority and none of them left off. First and foremost, God is our all in all and we do all things for them. Secondarily, he has brought us into the family, the household of faith, members of one body. And we want to make sure that, that this family, these members are well taken care of. And then beyond that, the world that's around, that we continue to preach that gospel. We continue to declare that resurrection of Christ because that, apart from that, there is no hope. Apart from that, there is nothing. So the, these three simple things, unity, charity, and duty, a unity that's rooted in Christ, rooted in truth, rooted in like-mindedness and like commitment, a charity that recognizes the sovereignty and mastery of God over all things and the blessed unity that he's brought us into with one another as members of the body of Christ. And then the ongoing duty that we have to be salt and light in this present world. Let us, uh, let us pray. Lord, we just thank you that we could spend a little time in your word today and, and see these remarkable things, these things which speak of great grace. Lord, we thank you also that as they were doing that duty, that it says um, they were sharing that message, that testimony with great power. We know that in all of our ministry of the gospel, we must do so with dependence upon you. God, we know that in, in all of our uh, pursuit of unity, it must be a unity in truth, in the spirit, in Christ. Or do we know also that we are not individually on our own, but you have made us members of a body, members of a family. Lord, we pray that you would stir up that kind of selfless, servant-hearted love for one another. Lord, I pray that this congregation, as I, well, as I pray that these truths would be prevailing in many gatherings, that we might know the greater grace of God abounding among us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.